0: Welcome to History Class After Hours, I'm Joseph Barra and joining me today in front of a live audience is Alex. Hello. Woo! Hey! hey. hey. And today we are going to talk about Moe Berg, the baseball spy. What do you know about Moe Berg? Absolutely nothing. Most people don't know about Moe Berg, so it'll be an interesting story. So Morrisburg was born in 1902 to a wealthy Jewish family. His dad was a pharmacist and um, they lived in Harlem, so New York City. And they would live a couple of blocks from the polo grounds. Um, if you don't know what the polo grounds were, they were where the New York Giants played and then the New York Mets. Um, it was known as having the deepest center field in baseball, 494 feet. Wow. Deep park. The lines, I think down the line, so it was only like 230, 240. So it was a really weird-looking uh, stadium. So when he was three and a half, he began to beg his mother to let him start school. He was a really smart guy. Um, by the age of seven, he began to play for the Rollsville Methodist Episcopal Church Baseball Team, and he had to change his name, so he changed it to Runt Woof. I'm assuming that means like little wolf and the reason why he had to change his name was because he was Jewish it was probably a hard sell to be playing on a Methodist Episcopal church (laughs) baseball team Uh, when he was in high school he was named to the city's dream team he would then go on to attend Princeton University and he receive a degree in modern languages and he could speak Greek Latin French Spanish Italian German and Sanskrit what's Sanskrit Sanskrit's a dead language that was spoken in uh, Mesopotamia. (laughs) Uh, Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. So then um, he would never truly fit in at Princeton, primarily because of his moderate moderate financial background. Um, After he graduated from Princeton, though, he would then go on to attend Columbia Law School, where he'd learn several more languages, Japanese and Russian. But along with his academic success, Berg was a gifted baseball player. Uh, He was not a great hitter. He was a slow runner, but he made up for it by having a strong and accurate arm and a very good baseball IQ. He would also communicate with other players in Latin. So he played shortstop, and his second baseman spoke Latin, and they would talk back and forth in Latin so the other teams couldn't understand what they were doing. Was it just one guy? How many people know Latin? Um, Back then, if you were Catholic, you probably knew it. Oh because services services were still in latin yeah. up until like the 70s yeah. so um so in june 1923 his princeton team would be uh, would be beaten by yale 5-1 to at yankee stadium but berg is going to have a really good day during the game and he's going to draw the attention of scouts from the new york giants and the brooklyn robins who would eventually become the brooklyn dodgers If you don't know how the Brooklyn Dodgers got their name, it was because there was trolleys that would go around Brooklyn and you literally had to dodge them. And so the name stuck and they became the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Both teams, though, desired having a Jewish player in order to appeal to a large Jewish community in New York, so that also drew them to Berg. So Berg would decide to sign with the Robins because he felt that gave him a better chance to play, and he signed for $5,000, which is $75,000 in today's money. So that's a pretty good contract for back then. So in 1923, Berg would sign his contract with the Brooklyn Robins. Um, and his first season with the Dodgers would be mediocre. Uh, during the off season, though, he would take his first trip overseas and would settle in the Latin Quarter in Paris. And there, he would attend the University of Paris. He would enroll and complete 32 classes during the summer. How is that possible? He's a very smart guy. Ah. That's great. That's like two years worth of college, if I'm doing my math right. That's a Um, lot. That's a lot of school there. Um, In Paris, he developed the habit of reading 10 newspapers a day, and he was very quirky about his newspapers. Once he touched a newspaper, he deemed it to be alive, and no one else was allowed to touch it. What you're going to see with Mo Berg is he's he's got some quirks to him. Once he was done reading it, he would deem the newspaper dead, and then anybody could take it. But he was, he was really up-to-date on current events and things like that. So the next couple of years, Berg would jump around the minor leagues. One scout's report on him was, quote-unquote, good field, no hit. Very uh, extensive scouting report there. Eventually, though, the White Sox would call on him to play catcher. He, however, joined the team too late because he was finishing law school. Um, This was even after Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox at the time, offered him a lot of money to come to spring training, and he basically said, no, I want to finish law school first. But because of his tardiness, he spent the first three seasons on the bench, but then a string of injuries to White Sox catchers would give him the opportunity to play. It also helped that their best pitcher, Ted Lyons, Hall of Famer, Um, refused to pitch to the replacement catcher they just signed because he said he was too fat was he I don't know (laughs) imagine being called too fat by the pitching staff and saying he's too fat to catch but so that gives Berg his opportunity and in 1928 he's going to have his best year Um, and to get ready for that season he worked at a lumber yard to get in shape in 1929 he would be admitted to the New York bar so he'd become a lawyer And then he would tear up his knee that year as well and never really recover. So that winter, while trying to recover from his knee injury, he'd work for a very well-respected Wall Street law firm. In 32, his baseball career would come to an end as he was released by the Indians. Um, And Senator's outfielder said of Berg, when told of his linguistic abilities, yeah, I know, and he can't hit in any of them. (laughs) One of the great lines. All right, so then, Berg is going to go to Japan. So by the 1930s, the U.S. government had raising suspicion that the militaristic government of Japan was preparing for armed domination of Asia and the Pacific. Shockingly, though, the U.S. was the only major world power at this time that did not have a global intelligence service. Our military was a little, a little lagging in the 1930s. It always has been. Yeah. <laughs> So FDR was therefore completely in the dark and really had no idea what was going on in Japan. However, an opportunity to gain vital intelligence on Japan would inver- emerge in, in an unusual way. In 1934, a man named Herb Hunter arranged for a group of baseball all-stars to tour Japan playing exhibition games against a Japanese all-star team. The team included hall of famers like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Lefty Gomez, and then the not-so-great Mo Berg. He was put on the roster. Everybody was like, why is this guy Mo Berg on the roster with all these legends? Mo Berg himself was a little on the confused side. But then the reason for him being on the roster is it's it's told to him. So the US government had stepped in and put him on the team, knowing that he had spoke Japanese and he had been in Japan before. So the government felt with this experience, along with his ability to speak Japanese and his high intellect, he would be the perfect person to sneak on the team and work as an operative to gain intelligence. Berg would eagerly accept the challenges because he felt he owed a debt to the United States because the country had been so good to his immigrant parents. So when the team arrived in Japan, Berg gave a welcome speech in Japanese and then would address the legislator. Once in Tokyo though, Berg would carry out his plan he would make his way to one of the tallest buildings in Tokyo, which was a hospital. He had a story to go along with this. He said he was there to visit the daughter of U.S. Ambassador Joseph Groh, because she had just undergone surgery, and uh, the government even makes up the story on how her favorite player was Mo Berg, even though he was like horrible. Um, So in reality, he was there to gather intelligence. So carrying a briefcase, he would find a stairwell and stealthily make his way to the roof. He will later say he's even wearing a kimono to try to blend in. All right. There he pulls out a 16 millimeter camera and began recording a panorama of the city. So prior to leaving for Japan, Berg had made a cover story to explain having the camera. The U.S. government had arranged for the company Movietone Tone News to write a letter stating that Berg had been contracted to film the all-star tour for the audience at home. The story would help him get the camera in Japan, but would not help if he was caught on the roof by the Japanese military police called the Kempeitai. They were like the uh, Gestapo in Japan. Oh. They were really brutal. Have You ever seen the show um, Man in the High Castle? No. Yeah. The Kempeitai plays a big part in that. They just go around like beating. That's be- the one on the west coast, right? Correct. Yeah. They just go around like beating people and. Yeah, It's basically the Gestapo, the Japanese version. <coughs> um, this would not deter Berg, though, and he would take several hundred feet of panoramic views of Tokyo, which had the view of several miles in all directions, and he would never meet the ambassador's daughter. So I'm really hoping that Mo Berg really wasn't her favorite baseball player because he never showed up. <laughs> Imagine the disappointment in that poor child. Your favorite baseball player is coming. I'm in the hospital. She's still she's still waiting there for him that was her one wish <laughs> that was her one wish <laughs> so the intelligence that Berg had gained on Tokyo would be vital in plan- planning to do little raids once the war started because that's basically the only film we had of Tokyo when Berg returned to the US he'd played for the US uh, for the Boston Red Sox for a couple seasons um, He would also make several appearances on the radio quiz show, Information Please, and we do very well. Baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis would say of his appearance, Berg, in just 30 minutes, you did more for baseball than I've done the entire time I've been commissioner. Because most people thought all baseball players were idiots. They're like, hey, we got a smart one. We got a smart (laughs) baseball player. All right. So his career officially ends in 1939. So by the time World War II started, Berg had been retired from baseball for a while, and he would accept a job working with the Office of Inter-American Affairs. Do you know what they did? No, what's the Office of Inter-American Affairs? It was an agency created by FDR to counter Italian and German propaganda in the Western Hemisphere. So the FBI trained the secret police of friendly nations. That was one thing they did. Uh, German sales to the military forces were displaced by American aid, so whenever we saw the Germans like starting to give stuff to like Argentina, we stepped in uh. and tried to pick it up uh pro German newspapers and radio stations were blacklisted and then you had government censorship was also encouraged while Latin America was blanketed with pro American propaganda. We were really fearful that like South America and Latin America was going to become Nazi, and so we like did all this stuff all right. So his job was to monitor the health and wellness of American troops that were stationed throughout the Caribbean and South America. Tough job. Well, you know, at least you're in the Caribbean.
1: You are in the I Caribbean.
0: Know. Yeah. But I'm thinking 1941, we really don't have that many troops. So he's, he's not really working that hard. In 43, he would leave the organization because he felt like South America posed little threat to the U.S. and his services could be used elsewhere. So, at this point, he takes a job with the OSS, or the Office of Strategic Services, that would become the precursor of CIS. the CIA, C-A-I-A. yep. So, now he's, he's getting into the SBNage business again. He's going to be assigned to the secret intelligence branch of the OSS. His first mission was to parachute in the former country, Yugoslavia, and gather <laughs> intelligence <laughs> on resistance. <laughs> All right. Um, so basically, they dropped him behind lines in Yugoslavia, and he was supposed to go around speaking to all these resistance groups that were fighting Nazis, and he was supposed to determine whether or not it was worth giving them military aid. Was, this, what's his name, the leader at the time? Tito? Yeah. No. Oh, you never met Tito? He never met Tito. Oh. Um, he would also help prepare Slavic Americans primarily from the area of Yugoslavia to be dropped in to help the resistance movement. So he was also recruiting um, <clears throat> people from the Balkans who were living in the United States to go fight in the Balkans against Nazis. To work side by side with the resistance. How did you do that? Did you uh, just come do s- door to door? If I had to guess, it was because the Croatians were a fascist puppet state during World War II. So all you had to tell the Bosnians and the Serbians was I was gonna say they probably used a census to figure out where the people in America were living. <laughs> I, could, I could probably assume that most of the people that this guy recruited were Bosnians and Serbs. Migrations weren't happy with uh, us Uh so his next mission would be to send uh, would send him to Italy as part of what was called Project Larson. He's going to have two goals. He was supposed to interview Italian physicists to see what they knew in regards to the Nazis' uh, atomic bomb program. He was also supposed to kidnap Italian rocket and missile specialists and bring them back to the U.S. to help the U.S. build rockets. Did he get any? No. <laughs> I didn't know the Italians had a rocket program in World War II. <laughs> So Berg would travel to Italy and met with physicists Edoardo Amaldi and Giancarlo Wick who admitted that they had done had not done any atomic research for the Germans and suspected that even if the Germans were working on an atomic bomb it would have taken them at least a decade to complete it complete it Berg then continued to visit with other Italian scientists throughout the summer though little was learned about a German nuclear program In December of 44 the OSS learned that renowned German physicist Werner Heisenberg was leaving Germany to give a lecture in Zurich. Berg was ordered to attend the conference and make contact with Heisenberg and he was told if there was any indications that the Germans were working on the bomb he was ordered to shoot Heisenberg inside the lecture hall during his speech if necessary. Didn't he end up not shooting him? Correct. He attends the lecture sat with a pistol in his pocket and basically, he was also given a cyanide tablet, because I'm pretty sure they told him once you shoot him, you're probably going to have to kill yourself, so, we don't, so no one knows who you are. Um, but Heisenberg did not real, reveal anything about the German nuclear program, therefore he was saved. what well, stupid. Who's going to reveal the German nuclear program in a, in a conference meeting? You just got to go ahead and kill him. <laughs> you just got to go ahead and kill him in front of everybody. At that point, it doesn't matter. Well, Well, he's going to get to know Heisenberg a little bit more. Okay, so Berg was able to meet with Heisenberg's Swiss host and OSS source Paul Schur and secure an invitation to dine with Heisenberg later that week. And Berg listened carefully to the conversation that evening, but there was no indication the Germans were even working on an atomic bomb. And that would be Berg's final mission of World War II. So he went all the way to Germany or to Switzerland just to not kill his target. Correct. And then he went to Italy to go kidnap scientists and never kidnapped any. So he's got a really good he's been doing really well. Just imagine like just imagine going to Switzerland like I mean it's surrounded by Nazi Germany and Italy and, like trying to get in there they'd be kind of it be a little sketchy. I wonder what type of um credentials they gave him. Yeah. Like how he was able to do it. Yeah. That'd be something looking, Probably just some fake passports. Mm-hmm. So, after the war, Berg was occasionally employed by the CIA. However, he was never allowed to go on missions because of increasingly erratic behavior. He used okay. to go on, like, these tangents and just start screaming things and all sorts of random stuff. Because he doesn't kill his target. <laughs> Maybe that's why, too, yeah. <laughs> he, would re- he would request to be sent to Israel because he felt he owed it to his Jewish heritage. And he would write, a Jew must do this, in his notebook. They declined his, his request to go to Israel, saying... You're too unstable, and your skills have declined. Yeah, they have. In 52, Berg was hired by the CIA to use his old World War II contacts to gather information on the Soviet nuclear program. He was given $10,000 plus expenses. The CIA got nothing in return. So you're starting to see a trend here. The CIA agent who spoke to Berg on his return to Europe said that he was flaky. (laughs) He was then soon relieved from his duties. So for the next 20 years berg would not have a real job he lived off of friends and relatives who would put up with him a lot of times he was allowed to live because most people enjoyed his stories which kept on getting more and more embellished as he got older like they kept on getting like more just like crazy and he also didn't like to say stay in the same places very long it was said he would move from friend to friend sometimes staying an hour sometimes staying three weeks But as Berg got older, he'd become more moody and snappish and did not care much about anybody except his books. He would still tell people he worked for the CIA. When asked what he did for a living, he would put his finger on his lips to give the impression that it was a secret. When people would ask about his life, he said he couldn't because it was classified information. He was a very private person. Uh, Berg would receive many requests to write his memoirs, but it turned them all down. He almost began work in 1960, but he quit after the co-wri- co-writer assigned to work with him confused him with Mo. How- oh, eh, can't talk, Mo Howard of the Three Stooges. <laughs> That's what happens when you don't kill your target.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so the guy started writing his biography on him, and then he saw like the first chapter, and it was about one of the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. Pretty accurate. Not a good look. Did he ever do anything
1: important? We'll get to that.
0: (laughs) So toward the end of his life, he would ride in a car with his friend, William Klein, who was a salesman. Klein would park the car and make business calls, and Berg would just sit in the front seat and fall asleep. When appointments were over, Klein would take Berg to White Castle, Great Hamburgers, and he would just sit down and wolf down sliders. What else are you going to do when you've got nothing to do in life? Just, exactly. just sit in a car and <laughs> wow. All right. and then on may 29th 1972 berg would die from injuries sustained from a fall his last words were how did the mets do today <laughs> he will be cremated and his ashes will be spread over mount scopus in jerusalem so after the war the oss was disbanded berg was awarded the medal of freedom the highest honor given to civilians during wartime by harry s truman he declined to accept it without any public explanation, but the citation read, Mr. Morrisburg, United States civilian, rendered exceptionally uh, meritorious service of high value to the war effort from April 44 to January 46. In the position of responsibility in the European theater, he exhibited analytical abilities and keen, a keen planning mind. He inspired both respect and constant high level of endeavor on the part of the subordinates, which enabled his section to produce studies and analysis vital to the mounting of American operations. After his death, his sister Ethel requested and accepted the award on his behalf, later donating it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1996, he was inducted to the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. In 2000, he was inducted to the Baseball Reliquary's Shrine of the Internals. He is the only base. He is the only baseball card currently on display at the CIA's headquarters in Langley, Langley, Virginia. I guess they have a really cool museum there, but you have to be a member of the CIA to see it. Well, of course. <laughs> yes, it's got like all their like tools, and that'd be wow. awesome to see. And then in 2018, a movie called *The Catcher Was a Spy*, starring Paul Rudd Asberg was made. It did not get very good reviews. No. Yeah. I think it's got like a 27 score on like Rotten Tomatoes or something. Okay. So that was Story Moberg, Berg, baseball spy. Moral of the story, if you have a target, you better take it out. <laughs> he didn't deem it necessary. He's like, the guy don't know nothing. He just would have been shooting a man that knows nothing. All right, so that's Story Moberg. Berg. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.